Would you stand now, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy word? We are still in the book of Acts this morning. We're thinking about the ways, looking at the ways, considering the ways that God's spirit is at work in moving his church forward as Jesus has commanded to go to the ends of the earth. How does the spirit go about doing that very thing? Young disciples, this morning I have a question for you as you listen in and as you think about what God is saying in this text. How do you see the early church applying the gospel in this new way, in this new context? You hear me? How does the early church apply the gospel in this new context, and how does that teach us to apply the gospel in our day-to-day? Let's read together now Acts chapter 14, verses 27 through 15, verse 21. Luke writes, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. All the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. And from sexual immorality and for what has been strangled, and from blood. 
For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You be seated. Father in heaven, we ask for your grace and mercy now as we turn our eyes to you and your word. Would you give us more of your son who has been given by you for our salvation? We pray that you would lift our eyes, you would make ready our hearts, make ready our hands to receive him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I told you today that I'm going to send you to work, you're going to work, you don't know where you're going, but your day will be filled with long meetings, disagreements, debates between colleagues about mission and vision, Resolutions that call for compromise and lingering communication issues that never seem to get solved. What do you think you'd be doing? How about the work of the church? That's what's going on here in Acts 15. Luke invites us to peek behind the scenes and to see how an important dilemma gets solved, how business gets done in the early church. This is not just a history lesson for us this morning. I think that this peek behind the scenes is important for us, really, for at least two reasons. Number one, it shows us that there's not really this great divide between work in the church and work in the world. The gears of organization, the gears of coordination, of human relationships, and and clarifying what to do next— This is the work of God no matter the realm, whether that takes place in a church or in an office building or at home with little ones. Getting things done, decision-making, leadership, God cares about these things. Number two, second reason I think this is important is because it, it clarifies, I think, and clears up some romantic ideals we sometimes harbor about what life in the early church was like. I mean, you've never said this yourself, but I've, I've, I've heard it before. People say, you know, the early church was just so pure. It was so simple then. It was so uncomplicated. You know, all they did was love Jesus and love other people and share their faith. If we could only get back to the simplicity of the early church in Acts. And I want to say, what New Testament are you reading? (laughs) There is so much chaotic stuff going on, for example, in Corinth, that you would cover your kids' ears right now if I read the list of things that was going on. We would make us blush. We would never send a friend, even an enemy, church shopping there. (laughs) All right? In Galatians, you can read about Paul having to confront Peter publicly and rebuke him for not walking according to the gospel. And it's easy to romanticize that scene years later, but think about it. These are two major leaders. I mean, the the two major leaders in the early church, and here they are in sharp public disagreement. And then Paul writes about it. He shows everyone how Peter was wrong and how he was right, how insensitive of him. 
And he circulates that letter, not just to one church in Galatia, but to all the churches, so that Peter is once again memorialized in posterity for what he did wrong. And we have this scene in Acts 15. This is church politics. Luke says that there was no small dissension and no small debate. That's an editorial, right? To tell us that the halos came off, faces got red, voices were elevated, and some people got their feelings hurt. This is the good old days. And what we find in reading the Old Testament and the New Testament is that by God's grace and God's design, his church has always, always, always existed as an institution of leaders and offices and meetings. And it's the institution of the church, even when that institution is messy and fallen and, and the gears are clunky, that is God's chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel to the world. God has no plan B. So Luke gives us this behind-the-scenes look, how these institutional gears turn as this early church struggles to apply the gospel in every new situation in which they find themselves. Instructive for us this morning, I think, in two ways, and I want to proceed through the passage briefly with two questions in mind this morning. First, I want you to see what the dilemma is. What's at stake? What's, What's going on? What's the problem that they're addressing? And then number two, how does it get resolved? What's the dilemma, number one? And then secondly, how does does this get resolved? Well, the dilemma in Acts 15, and and honestly, um, this dilemma carries over and casts a shadow over much of the New Testament. If you read Paul's letters, other letters of the New Testament, this is still being worked out. The dilemma is how to answer the question of cross-cultural unity. Cross-cultural unity. How will Jews and Gentiles not just tolerate, which is the spirit of our age, right? Not just tolerate, but love one another as brothers and sisters, despite the fact that they have significant, significant, excuse me, cultural differences. How will they live together as a new community that is bigger than either one of them by themselves? Now, the dilemma here comes from actually a really great problem to have. The the problem is that the early church is blowing up. It's going well. God is at work in the gospel. The gospel is bearing fruit among the Jews in Jerusalem. And the gospel is exploding in the Gentile world. And the church at Antioch is ground zero for that explosion. And Gentiles are coming into the church so quickly that the demographics of the early church are shifting. Soon there will be more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. It's a seismic cultural, it's a seismic demographic shift in the early church. Now you may or may not know this, but there is also a seismic shift like this taking place in our own time. The center of global Christianity is moving just by pure numbers, from the cultural West, which is us, to the global South and the global East. You know, a century ago, 80% of Christians lived in North America or or, or, or Europe. That number now is 40%. The Christian community in Latin America and Africa, if you combine those numbers, is over 1 billion people now. Demographers estimate that there are more 
Christians worshiping on any given Lord's Day in China than are currently worshiping now in the U.S. All of which to say, this reminds us that the gospel has never been the property or proprietary message of a given culture. The gospel did not belong to the Jews alone, does not belong to Western Europeans alone. It is a message for the world. And throughout history, even even early on, God has sent revivals and renewals that shift these demographics. I had the opportunity this past Friday of of meeting with one of our our congregants, Kay Gabrish, one of our teachers, and we went and visited a, a Coptic church, Coptic Christian church in Colleyville. Now, you may not know this, but Coptic Christianity has largely been, it's largely been Egyptian Christianity. And really, into the last 50 years, they only had churches in in Egypt. And if I told you that that Egypt was a hub of Christianity, you would have thought, "I I don't think of Egypt like that, right? But if I said names like Tertullian, Origen, Clement, Augustine, these are all North Africans. There was a hub in early Christianity, and we we are heirs of that hub in another time and another place. All to say, the gospel does not belong to a particular culture, and that is what the early church is having to reckon with. And it's brought with it this tremendous fear, as it often does, some conservative Jewish believers, some conservationists, are worried that with this new influx of pagan Gentiles coming to Christ, that the traditional moral standards of the church are going to weaken. They're going to suffer. So a solution is proposed. Let's not keep them from coming, but let's just take the old pattern of Judaism and say if they're going to come in, just like they had to in Judaism, they have to first be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in verse 1 as it says, in order to be saved. That's the proposed solution. In other words, Gentiles, you can come, but you first have to become like us before you become like Christ. In order to be Christians, you have to become Jewish first. That's the proposal. And on the other side is Paul and Barnabas and Peter saying, you know what, that just doesn't sound right doesn't sound like the gospel that we've been preaching. You say, what's not right about it? Well, the problem that Paul and Barnabas and Peter sniff out is is that the gospel never asks us to be or do anything before coming to Jesus Christ, ever. As one 19th century Scottish pastor puts it, Christ asks no preparation whatsoever. He wants you to come just as you are, and not to cherish this morning the vain thought that by a little waiting, or a little working, or a little more praying, or a little circumcision, that you can make yourself fit. It is simply sinners that Jesus welcomes. And what Paul, and what Barnabas, and what Peter knew is that Jesus came not to teach us the steps to get to God, he came to abolish those steps. Jesus didn't come to build a way, he came to clear the way. So that knowing God is simply receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ as he is offered to us 
in the gospel. That is the whole of it. And what Paul and what Peter and what Barnabas know so well is that if you take that message, listen, if you take that message and you add even one small condition to it, if you add one asterisk, if you add one single step, even if that step is the law of Moses given by God himself, you have not adapted it or modified it, you have destroyed it altogether. If you add anything to Jesus, you have undone the good news that he is alone sufficient to carry the weight of what God requires of you and the weight of your failures before him. You know, I love how Peter puts it in the, in the passage. I'll just give you one image here. You can read more of it later. But, but Peter says to these men from Jerusalem, when he stands up, he says, he says, you are placing a yoke on these people that no one, even us, has ever been able to bear. You know what a yoke is? It's a yoke is what you know, tied oxen together. You're putting a yoke on them that no one's ever been able to bear. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Contrast that. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and need rest. You ever feel like you need rest? Come to me, all who are weary and need rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and it's light. And you will find rest for your souls. What Paul and Barnabas and Peter knew is that the church has to hold to and preach and protect and proclaim the light and easy yoke of Jesus. That is our fastball. And that as Peter says, or excuse me, as James says in verse 19, if we do anything other than that, we make it hard for people to come to God. We do not want to make it hard for people to know God. Do we? We do not want to make it hard for people to know God. The Judaizers were make it hard. They were troubling people who wanted to know God by saying, come be like us in order to be like Jesus. We can do the same thing if we're not careful. Anytime that we conflate the gospel, we make the gospel part of our own preferences, anytime we link the gospel with a certain way of having to dress up or certain manners, anytime we link the gospel with a style of music, he taught them the gospel gets less linked with a standard of church activity. Do this, 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 and this, and you'll be okay. Anytime the gospel gets linked to a particular political party. Anytime we say things like, you know, you have to vote this way to really be a Christian. We are making it hard for people to come to God. We are adding a yoke that is more than Jesus alone. Now hear me say this. It's not that you can't dress nicely. It's not that Christians can't be deeply involved in the sphere of politics. It's not that these Christians couldn't observe the Mosaic food laws. It's that we cannot elevate those things even in perception to a condition of what it means to be loved or accepted by God. The yoke of Jesus must remain easy, and it must remain light. And that's one half of the equation, but there's more here. I want to end here this morning, because often, if we think we're holding to the gospel, we only get that half. But there's something else here as well. 
Notice how James concludes his instructions in verses 19 through 21. It says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not make it hard or trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, I don't have time this morning to, to tell you what all those things mean. I know that, that for a lot of us, those are very foreign activities that don't seem to link together. But here's, here's what James is saying in a very practical way. The Gentiles do not have to become Jewish to become Christians, but they do have to live morally and ethically in sensitivity and in respect for their Jewish brothers and sisters. They do have to live in such a way that does not give offense to the gospel, that does not make it hard for everyone else to follow Christ either. And the principle here is a critical one. You know, the, the yoke of Jesus is light and the yoke of Jesus is easy, but it also yokes me to the well-being of my neighbor. The yoke of Jesus yokes me to the well-being of my neighbor, and until I have considered what my actions do to the good of my neighbor, I have not yet begun to apply the gospel. In other words, it is not enough for the love of Jesus to grip my heart. The love of Jesus must exit my heart and my hands, my feet, and what I do, it must touch everything I do, including those who live next to me. Um, I'll give you a quick illustration and we'll close this morning. You know, one of, the, um, one of the early tension points, it wasn't a tension point, it was an argument in my marriage. It's about 15 years ago. It was over laundry, Okay. And as an aside, I just read about a new study that says of all household tasks, how couples divide doing the dishes has the most impact on the health of a relationship. So easy win, guys, do the dishes, okay? That's just free. This was over laundry. And my wife, Jada, was graciously doing said laundry. And she went to get a load of whites out of the dryer and there were pin markings all over the whites. They, all the, it looked like a toddler had taken a pin and just gone all over them, and, and almost everything was ruined. And, um, you know, she told me about it, and, um, and the first question was, whose fault was it? How do we litigate this, you know? Whose fault is it? Well, I had left a pin in one of the pockets of my shorts. And Jada made her case. She said, logically, your shorts, your pen, your pockets, your responsibility to check the pockets on your shorts before you put them in the dirty clothes. And I said, illogically, but my mom always checked my pockets before she washed my clothes. <laughs> that was 15 years ago. I serve as a warning to you this morning. You know, what was I learning as a new husband besides to stop talking and saying stupid stuff? I was, I was learning that the vows that I took on April the 6th, 2002, the vows which yoked me joyfully to my wife, those vows had something to say about every part of my life, even how I put my laundry and the dirty clothes. 
what it meant to be a husband, what it meant to love her and cherish her, to know her, to honor her, could not be kept up here or even in here. It had to be applied. It had to be imagined. It had to be reimagined, discussed, often debated in all of life. So that it worked itself out in all kinds of situations. And it's an ongoing work. In an even greater way, this is what the early church believed about the gospel. It was never enough just to say, Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, I'm with him. They always believed that that message had to be applied. Had to be worked out in practice in the real world of differences and sensitivities with the real priority of love as the backbone. Friends, this is still our task. As the gears turn in this church, as the clunkiness happens even in the life of our own church family, it is true that things have changed quite a bit in 2,000 years. Demographics will always shift. But we are still the heirs of this Jerusalem council. And our message, the message that must be protected and proclaimed and believed is that Jesus Christ has come to set us free, and that is a light and an easy yoke. Yet as Paul says in Galatians 5, it's an opportunity to use your freedom not to indulge your own flesh, but in love to serve one another, to live yoke to Christ, that other people might also find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us in this old story. For, Lord, you superintending Luke's pen as he wrote it down. And we pray, O Spirit, in the same way that you've authored the word, that you would apply it, teach us how to move forward. Lord, I pray that we would both long for, rest in the easy yoke of Jesus, and yet also also long for new ways to see it imagined in the lives of those around us. Would you give us that imagination, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.